on episode 11 of the InsureTech Geek podcast, talking about virtual insurance brokering with John Warburton from Concilio. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives with our own R&D team into technology we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. Greetings and salutations to everybody out there in InsureTech world. I hope you're doing well. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas and New Year's and enjoyed the beginning of the year. Can you believe it's already into February of 2020? Had a really unique date the other day, right? It was uh, 2... What, what, what was 02022020, February 2nd, 2020. That just happened. It was, uh, that's not, that didn't happen for the last 900 years. So you data and, and math nerds will enjoy, uh, the fact that you had, uh, you had a unique date recently. Also that it's the year 2020. And, uh, this is supposed to be when all kinds of crazy things happen, like flying cars and bionics and all kinds of stuff that we kept being promised in science fiction movies. And they're, they're not quite here yet, but we do have a lot of other really cool stuff. And one of those things that we're going to be talking about is of course, out of the cool world of technology is InsureTech. And today we get to talk about it with a cross-pond episode. We have a Brit. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We have a Brit on the show. His name is John Warburton. John, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, James. And it's lovely to be on your show. Ah, lovely to have you on the show. Always good to have someone from uh, the mothership, from Queen's country. The people who speak the correct English, you mean? The Queen's English, yes. It is Indeed. the correct English. It is the correct English. I my, my English teacher, my senior year of high school, was Mrs. Smith. And Mrs. Smith was from England as well. And she made it very clear in her first day of teaching with us that we would be learning the Queen's English for that year. <laughs> and this is before, this was back in the 90s, right? It was before they... You know, the educational system got so standardized that teachers didn't have any latitude. And so she taught us what she wanted for a year. She taught me that woman, Mrs. Smith, my favorite English I think, teacher. I think the problem might have been the thing that we all do when we go to America is we all speak a little more received pronunciation. We all speak a little posher just to impress you Americans. Actually, if you listen to people speaking to each other over here, it's uh, it's a lot less elegant than Mrs. Smith. She was probably from the East End of London and a real Cockney. But, she, she, uh, exactly. <laughs> She put it on for you when she came over the pond. She did. She put on the Queen's English. And there's there's a good bit of putting on that goes on with uh, both British and Australians. We've we've had a lot of Australians on our other podcast, the Content Crew. We only work in two industries, construction and insurance, and they they have intersections all over the place. So we we get to work with Brits and Aussies and all kinds of. And, and the key cultural insight into the Brits is the end of the film Love Actually. That's every Brit's fantasy when they come to America. <laughs> if you know, if you know the bit I'm I'm referring to, I do, and that's hilarious. <laughs> Go for it, man! I tell you what, uh, it's uh, that that is that is keen insight into the British mind, right there. That that it is that is it. That's why that's why that that's sustaining half the tourist industry that comes to uh, comes to the U.S. Doesn't matter how many visa restrictions you put in front of us, the we we think we've got accent arbitrage that so we're we're over. <laughs> 
man, that no one has ever said that to me, but that is that is truly hilarious. You know, Aussies put it on too when they come here. I mean, big time. Yeah, but no one can understand what they say, so it's fine. Exactly, and they constantly confuse them for being British. And then exactly. the, the, the poor South Africans. You know, we have we have an office in Cape Town, and we have a lot of British South Africans and Dutch South Africans. And uh, the British South Africans, no one can tell where they're from. They 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 guess Australia, they guess England, they never guess South Africa. But uh, you you are you are one of the Queen's people. So Indeed. we're we're going to talk about you first, and then we're going to talk about insurance tech, and we're going to kind of dive into the bits and pieces behind the technology that's driving a lot of change in what you call broking, or we we call brokering. Yet another difference. It's like when y'all say go to hospital. What happened to the pro? What happened to the article? The the hospital. You know, you, you're going to the store. You go to hospital. Can you explain that to me? I really can't. And I've, you know, to be honest, that's the first time I've really considered that we don't put the hospital in front the in front of hospital. That is true. I'm going to hospital. You're going to hospital. Uh, the generic, the generic hospital, I suppose. Yeah, like, yeah. like which hospital? It's it's so confusing. It's almost like you turned hospital into a verb. Anyway, beside the point, let's go back to this and let's talk about you. Where were you born and raised? Where'd you go to school? Now you had a you had a stop at a school I'm not fond of, so we're going to talk about that. Yeah, I, I went. I was lucky that uh, I'd had a stint at the best uh, university in uh, in America, actually, uh, which was great for me. But uh, before I went to that one, now I'm I'm originally from Plymouth in the Southwest, which uh, many uh, people on your side of the pond will be familiar with, where the Mayflower sailed from and so on. Yes. So my my uh, my father was in the military or in the Navy, and but then he left and became an insurance broker. So I've got it in my blood, really. And grew up there, and then in uh, just south of London um, when I was a bit older. I went to um, university. My undergrad, I went to a place called the School of Oriental and African Studies, where I studied Middle Eastern politics. And I was also um, in the military as well myself. I was going to join the Navy and go and become James Bond. That was my plan. And so we're learning Arabic and uh, and learning uh, where things were in the Middle East so that uh, I would be uh, better prepared to go and do military things was, was, was what I was doing. But um, we had lots of defense cuts and I decided not to do that and ended up in an insurance company when in 1993 was when I joined the insurance industry. So I think I'm quite a bit older than you. And then, uh, yeah, I went through the normal uh, insurance company stuff. I worked for a company called Commercial Union, which is now part of Aviva. And then uh, then I went, when I was 23, I went with them to Hong Kong and then to Beijing. So I was in East Asia for best part of three years, which was a really formative uh, time for me and a lot of fun as well being 23 of that. And I was actually there talking of British things. I was in, I was actually, I'd, I'd already left living in Hong Kong. I was living up in Beijing, but I came, I was there in Hong Kong on the 30th of June, 1997. Do you know what happened then? Oh, one of the worst days in Hong Kong history. Well, I don't, that's a matter of opinion, I suppose, <laughs> depending, on which side, depending on which side, but certainly it caused a wrench for me. So yeah, the, the, this uh, for your listeners' benefit. This was the day that uh, Hong Kong was handed over from British sovereignty to mm. China. So sad. And I was there. The last that was the last day of the British Empire. The last vestiges of the British Empire, basically seeing that flag come down. But I will tell you my Hong Kong handover anecdote. So we on that day we'd been out in a company junk, terrible rain. The the Prince Charles was there to do the handover, and it was a big ceremony. But I, I went with some friends to a nightclub in uh, not far from where the ceremony was. And we went, you know, just typical nightclub type stuff, playing regular dance music. And then they had the TVs on silent in the corner of this club. And as it was getting towards midnight, it was a bit like the sort of thing you get in a, you know, at New Year's Eve. So you were 
counting down towards midnight and they had the TV on silence and you could see then they, they, they cut across to the TV and they paid, you know, God save our gracious queen. So they, they you know, the, as, the, as the Union Jack was coming down and then at, as that had come down, the Chinese flag was just starting to raise and the DJ in the club turned off the TV sound and started playing Always Look on the Bright Side of Life by, um, from uh, the film uh, The Life of Brian. Always look on the bright side of life. <laughs> and that was my that was the end of the British Empire and I was there to witness it. Oh, you were there and oh my gosh. So anyway, you know, it's it's tough. That was as early a, doors. Then I just carried on being an insurance guy. As an Anglophile, you know, I'm not British, but I pretend to be one sometimes. And uh I am I'm half English. And I, I love I love Great Britain. I I think it, you know, I think it's a pretty cool place. And uh I love going to London. Finance and insurance are big 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 business. In England, yeah, it's big. It's, yeah. I mean, in many ways, it's the it's the center of the let's say globalized bit of an insurance industry. So, mm. you know, Lloyd's of London and all that, and most the reinsurers. I mean, obviously, Munich and Swiss Re have big big capital, but I think it's a more international insurance market than uh, than sort of bits around Hartford and uh, and New York and so on. So yeah, no, it's yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah, it's a it's it's a, it's a fascinating place, and of course. Uh, you know, the companies that led the expansion of the British Empire, there, there was a very interesting public-private partnership between the British Empire expansion, between the British government and then all the different development companies that, that went with well, them. I think this is interesting, actually, when you see it. So I, I worked for this company, Commercial Union, which was one of those legacy kind of, you know, started in the Colonial Times companies. And what's interesting is you go around Asia, Malaysia, um, you know, Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, and then into even the bits that weren't necessarily colonized by the Brits that were influenced in Thailand. And you see the same, basically the same policy wordings, the same structure of insurance products and so on, particularly not so much in, uh, in consumers business, but in commercial insurance, it's pretty much the same wherever you go because of the Brits, because we went around and basically put these structures in based on uh, copy pasting policy terms and policy conditions from the UK practice in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, that sort of thing. So yeah, actually, as an insurance person, if you learn, as I did, if you learn how, you know, your insurance in, in the UK, it's pretty transportable around most bits of certainly Asia. And actually, funnily enough, even in, um, even in when I, I then I later on in my life, I worked in Germany and even in Germany, Italy, Spain, to be honest, there's very, there's a lot of commonality in commercial insurance terminology because it kind of was exported by the Brits. More yeah. Or less. And I love, and I love looking at the history of things. I'm, I'm a history nut and I listen to lots of history podcasts and read lots of history books. And I like to know where we came from so we can understand where we're going. So I'm a, I'm a futurist technology company owner who's been writing code for 30 years who is obsessed with historical <laughs> historical accounts of things. And it's fascinating because, you know, the, the Romans and the Greeks really were the originators of of, uh, of insurance. And you get down to like bottom recontracts uh, that the merchants of Babylon used 6,000 years ago. Yeah, and it's basically all comes out, it all comes out of marine cargo, doesn't it? It's yeah, it does. The genesis it's a, of it all. Yeah. yeah, it was all marine cargo. And then ancient Roman law recognized bottom recontracts. And then the Greeks really did the first known actual insurance contracts, but it was all about maritime cargo. But then of course, you know, the great fire of London, 1666 was the, that was the big originator for fire insurance and for property insurance. Exactly. So you get all these fire marks. And it's very tragic, actually. We've got this lovely um, institution called the Chartered Insurance Institute, which is like the professional body awards the, um, the certification, you, you get the, the sort of associateship or the fellowship, which is, you know, you, then you can call yourself a chartered insurance broker. And they had this lovely headquarters, what's 
not that old. It was like 100 years old. But it had all these fire marks up the staircase from all these old companies because, you know, after the fire of London, different insurance companies would have their own fire brigades. There wasn't municipal um, fire safety. So <laughs> they would have a fire mark on the side of a building and they would, if these guys had fire engines, you know, which is like a horse-drawn thing and they, they'd have a pump and they would go past the one. If there was a fire, they'd go past the ones that had the other people's fire marks on and they'd go to the one that had their fire marks. So you were basically, and, and this has kind of come full circle, you were, you were buying insurance, but you were also buying a loss. risk management service. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> like you're buying loss prevention as well, right? Yeah, loss prevention or loss mitigation at least. And so we've come full circle. You know, it's now possible to buy those sorts of things. I think that sort of goes to the heart of my, my thesis around insurance broking, really. We're here to manage risk, not to sell insurance. And you're seeing that actually interesting California there's a lot of uh, companies that sell private fire protection services for wildfires mm -hmm. and and yeah. of course there's a lot of public outroar because you know, they they're like well why are you passing the other houses well those houses paid for private fire service in addition mm -hmm. to paying taxes that pay for the public fire service uh, but there was a, a good bit of discussion and argument but you know no no discussion of insurance and England and anyone English is complete without talking about Lloyd's right mm-hmm 17th century starts as a coffee house and yeah. uh, it's just wild to think of of it that edward lloyd and a coffee house would start something um, so big and so you uh you know decided not to go in the military i by the way i had a similar choice i, I was in the corps of cadets today and i was a i was a navy midshipman which means i was, I was a cadet as a, yeah. as a college student i had the choice to commission as an officer and um i chose not to because bill clinton was president at the time and he wasn't hiring it was they were they were in the same thing military drawdowns and so mike well it was uh, don't tell the days of don't ask don't tell wasn't it yeah it was a wild it was a wild different military and it was a it was a very different military and it was a very different um, hiring policy, very different staffing policy. And so, uh, they weren't hiring. And, uh, so I, there, you know, it was, uh, it was a, a lot harder to get a commission in particular in the areas I was interested in. And so I started, uh, you know, my, my software company and you had a, a similar choice. You chose to, to deep dive into insurance, which led you interestingly to, to Hong Kong. What, what happened after Hong Kong and Singapore and all that? So I was, I was Hong Kong, Beijing. So I came back in 1998. Then I worked for a couple of years in the like London head office of, of Commercial Union. They went through a couple of mergers and I ran a personal lines book, which was a sort of affinity, a buzz, uh, so, you know, uh, motor, home and motor insurance. Yeah. It looks like you got caught up in the dot-com boom a little bit in 1999. I did, yeah. I did a thing for about, well, overall about two years, but really full-time, sort of six to eight months. So my dad, as I said, he was he was in insurance, so um, he had a he had a funny little brokerage business that did a bit of this and a bit of that. But they had a bit of travel insurance they did, and I said, Let, let's scale this. We can sell travel insurance direct to consumer on this there interweb thing. And this was pretty early days to do a transactional. We were the first ones to do a transactional, um, you know, the e-commerce. Yeah, ninety nine. Yeah, it was pretty early. It was it, it was it was called GoShore dot com. It's quite because you could get good URLs back then, uh, and uh, that was moderately successful. Um, in the end, some other guys came along with a bit more money but interestingly we we got uh so i i then went off to business school for a couple of years after that uh, like you know it was just a fill-in really for six months but funny my dad sort of took it on and then this guy worked with us my brother did it for a bit as well after college and uh, and this guy went said oh you know he worked with worked with my, he was a friend of my brother's went off and said oh can i do the same thing in australia and he went off and did it with the, with the technology partners and he's now i think the second third biggest um, one in australia nice so he's got his like a couple hundred million it's uh, or at least a hundred and something million um so uh yeah he did, he did really well with it 
So, so no, that was quite fun. And then I went to business school. And then, as I say, I went to London Business School. Well, hold on. In the great state of Texas. Yes. Yeah, so I went to the uh, the real university in Texas. The other uh, the one. University, the University of Texas, not the one that teaches people how to uh, mend uh, agricultural machinery. <laughs> So you did learn something over here. You learned how <laughs> exactly. you learned you learned how to smack talk like a Texan, which I appreciate. <laughs> so I, so for for the listeners out there, I, so I, I was at University of Texas in Austin, which is the yeah. little oasis of uh, of um, civilization in your fine state. I it, believe it, it is. It is. It is. It's an island. By the way, what brought you to Texas and UT? I just really fancied it. I, I, there was a list of like, ones places you could go on exchange. So I went for six months. I mean, I was doing you know my my degree was in London, but I um I I just really fancied Texas. I just thought it was the most American place you could possibly go it is and so i had a, I had a blast there and i was there in the 2000 election the dimple chad election with george w and uh, and al gore it was fascinating yeah hanging chads dimpled chads dimpled uh, chads hanging chads exactly. that was an exciting time it, it, everybody that felt was. like a like a like a uh, insurance underwriter uh specifying uh endorsements in a binder right like yeah if it's if it's halfway off but not all the way off is it still a hanging chad so, i must admit with, with being slightly annoyingly British about it for a moment. I was a bit amazed at the time that people didn't back off. I was surprised that the response from both sides was to send 300 lawyers each to Florida. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you'd have thought the appearance of legitimacy is almost as important as the result, you know? Nope. Anyway. <laughs> no, that's no, not, let's just, that, let's just win. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's not the way it went down. No, exactly. You spent after school quite a bit of time at Alliance and so I, I was at Accenture for a bit, a few years, yep. um, which is quite, it's good, just good training if you've been to business school and, you know, you, get, you learn how to do PowerPoint basically. And um, kids were on the way. So I thought, right, get out of consulting. It's a bit too much travel. And I got this job as the head of sales and distribution for Allianz um, is UK business, which was called Allianz Cornhill at the time. And uh, and I was there on and off for a diff- few different guises from 2004 to 2011. And uh, what was really interesting about that time, and I had a few different uh, sort of added marketing to it and product development and sort of expanded it a little bit. But the I was on the board of the commercial. So the way it was structured in the UK, you had the commercial insurance business and the personal insurance business. And um, what was really interesting about that time was there was a lot of consolidation, a lot of roll-ups going on in the UK at that time amongst brokers. So what was happening was we would we would have these reasonably stable portfolios of business and we were paying, I don't know, say 17.5% commission on average or 80, you know, was the typical for a commercial combined policy or 10% for fleet and these sorts of levels of commission. And these guys would buy, using private equity money, would buy up these uh, broking firms and come and knock on our door and say, oh, yeah, you know, these portfolios that are 17.5%, yeah, it's not anymore, it's 30. We said, what, 30? Not like... 20. No, 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 30. We're going to up it to 30. In fact, we'd like to do some work transfer. So we're going to add more value to you. So let's just call it 35. Whoa. And we were, we were, we were sort of gobsmacked, you know, the management team. And, and of course, it's a strategic issue. And it's really interesting from an economic point of view, because what was happening was this was between there, there was a reasonable concentration. I mean, there's a lot of personal lines car- carriers in, uh, sorry, commercial lines carriers in the UK, but there were five or six dominant, you know, companies. One of, you know, Allianz was, I think, the third or the fourth biggest at that point. I think it's now the second biggest. And, and so, you know, there's that whole um, prisoner's dilemma issue going on. So, you know, if they jump and they go for this thing, then we'll be left behind. We'll lose our volume. And uh, I did, there's a fantastic article actually about insurance called The Journey by McKinsey. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Have you ever read that? I that have article? not. 
it's the seminal um, uh, treatise on how to run a good insurance company. And what it says is don't chase the volume, chase the profitable business, basically. So if, if you're going to give up volume, then don't, don't, don't do it. But there's this dysfunction at the heart of insurance companies, which is we've got a fixed cost base. We don't want our expense ratio to rise. Therefore, we've got to keep the premium up rather than address the cost base. And what you should do is just keep your cost base reasonably stable and let the volumes fluctuate according to what pricing you can get. That's a better way to run an insurance company than, you know, ha- uh, be worried about about the ratio rising slightly. But anyway, we got sucked into that vortex and they all, they all were. And what happened was people, it was prisoner's dilemma people broke you know they said yeah yeah we'll pay 30 and then before you know it you you just had this rising tide of commissions very scary and what what i noticed back at that time was that these guys who were going around and buying up these firms firstly you know they were they were basically using the insurer's money to pay back the 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 debt and the private equity um so we were feeding it you know it's a kind of frankenstein's monster phenomenon but also this was really interesting these guys weren't adding anything when they did it they were just literally um it was literally a roll-up and it was literally a um a a supplier by you know buyer power type uh play and uh the insurers were the only target really so the clients weren't getting any better service in fact they were probably getting worse service and the staff and this was the key thing the staff were getting disenfranchised because they were working in 30 person organizations they might have one day thought of becoming a partner or a you know director of that firm and suddenly they're just assistant branch manager in some provincial bit of a, a, a bit of a backwater in this bigger organization but there's none of the benefits of being in a big organization so that was my key kind of insight if you like in that in that period was that this broking was just fundamentally a flawed model in terms of where the value creation was done. Yeah, basically they, they held them hostage. They said, hey, we're big and bad now. We're giant and you're going to pay more percentage because we want it. Yeah, I mean, from, from my point of view at the time, it was like, well, you know, they're screwing the insurers. But I mean, the insurers have fought back a bit. But so you shouldn't feel too, too sorry for the insurers. I mean, it's their own mistake that they said yes. But what they were also doing, uh, the collateral damage was the client relationships and the and the staff. They were what they were never doing, and was they were never investing in operational change in technology. So they were they were they were kind of doing the roll up and then stopping at the level of uh, managing the portfolios, optimizing the portfolio and the placement strategy, and that was it. They weren't doing anything to address the inefficiencies in the organizations, the op- you know the operational processes the proposition to their staff, the proposition to their clients, et cetera. And all those things were kind of left where they were or, or, or they worsened because there was, you know, fewer choice, less choice of, um, of insurers or, um, you know, basically the internal me- uh, mechanisms in all these firms became largely about have you met your budgets for placement with insurer A, insurer B, insurer C? So it became this sort of disenfranchising of the professional whole of market risk advice that these guys, that these broking people, these producers and these brokers could uh, could do. In other words, they weren't placing the client's risk needs as the primary priority. Yeah, they were going through the motions of doing that, but it was within a restricted portfolio of preferred markets. And then um, in addition, they they then got a bit even greedier. They wanted to go from 30, say 32 to 37 or 40 percent. So then they said, hey, oh, we've got this brilliant idea. We're going to create a managing general agent and we're going to consolidate our book into you know, an even smaller number of, uh, of insurers. And then there would be pressure internally to use the, the captive facility 
that was within these things. So you've got this kind of, you know, uh, rising tide of of commissions, which of course in the long run is pretty unethical and pretty um, uh, it's 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 against the interests of the client because the client ends up spend paying away forty. Well, plus the insurer's own costs, you know, 45 to 50 percent before any pay, uh, claims are paid. Yeah, but they, the real issue, too, is ultimately risk managers got wise to all this foolishness. The big ones did. The, the big ones did, but the middle ones, they didn't have that much choice. But what you, what you typically found was that uh, and this, um, I wrote this report, actually, with the Chartered Insurance Institute a few years ago. And we, um, we got a bit of data. And what was interesting was about four or five years ago, or even, say, seven or eight years ago and onwards, there's you know like like sort of mushrooms the 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 smaller firms started to grow market share relative to these consolidated ones because their the clients were not happy some staff would leave uh, they would take the clients with them etc so you know there's there's a certain organic uh, nature of the insurance broking market where you know business is fundamentally sticky to individuals and uh, and so you know these these large um, consolidator plays where they've got this rather rigid structure that there's a there's a sort of diseconomy of scale at the uh, at the end with those and uh, and that's what you're starting to see now although the game is still being played in exactly the same way with PE money we're seeing a lot of consolidation going on still in the UK market there's sort of second wave and third wave of these guys because it's a pretty easy way to make money um, apparently until it comes home to roost. So one of the biggest consolidators had a had financial difficulty about uh, eight years ago, seven or eight years ago, because it, you know it's just a, an unsustainable kind of pyramid. Sure. Well, it depends on someone else buying you out eventually. That's the game. That's their thought. Yeah. The real game is acquire. The real game is we're going to get a higher multiple if we have a bigger book of business than we would if we have a smaller book of business. Exactly. And if we can drive margins up and if we can drive commissions to our producers down, we can pump our spread and then take our multiple up three or four points from where it was and, you know, make a killing. I mean, it's, and that's not wrong uh, in terms of the, there is an economy of scale in broking. The problem is the primary, the only lever of economy of scale that brokers really, that these consolidating brokers were really playing on was buyer power versus insurers, you know, so they were walking past, um, economies of scale in technology development and 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 and, and support and process reengineering. They're walking past economies of scale, which don't really exist that heavily, but you know, in branding. But certainly, they were you know in proposition or in staff training or staff wellness or any of these other things that might be actually levers you could use to make yourself a better organization. They were just focusing in on the on the buyer power thing as the most uh, the most obvious one. So anyway, so, so, you, so that you, was kind of an interesting time I spent with it back then in uh, in that period. It was a very time of massive change in the UK market. Sure, and 11 years at Allianz, and, and then you decide to... So that was up to 2011. Then 2011, I went from then until 2014. I was actually based in Germany. I was um, So I was promoted to this role, which was... Um, I worked for the chief marketing officer. Uh, and this was a time when Allianz were really thinking hard about, you know, what does it take to digitize? I mean, we would now say insure tech, but then there wasn't a word. But it was like, what can we do that's digital? What what can we do? Uh, you know, Allianz, the biggest after the demise of the first, <laughs> the, the post-financial crisis, AIG um, kind of collapse and then rebirth. So Allianz, I think, was the biggest property and casualty um, insurer. Uh, well, biggest insurer, full stop. Sorry, life and property and casualty. And um 
and you know massive global player not so big in the us uh, a few bits and pieces in the us but more more um you know definitely european um asian pretty big um etc so um so uh you know what how can we digitize and the really and so this was an interesting role and you know it had a lot of prominence the real board um board connection my boss reported to the global ceo and then there was a you know there's the operations as chief opera uh, the coo was really into it all as well so we we, we had a big sort of you know we, we get, we've got an appetite to invest they've got the they've got the the wherewithal to invest hundreds of millions um as alliance have done subsequently as well uh, in this you know internal change um you know do we work with startups how are we going to crack this nut when what we realize is that or what you know the alliance generally realizes you know we've got these massive um books of business which are really dependent on 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 personal relationships and now this was more you know the the consumer businesses particularly in places like germany italy spain france they have these models which aren't it's not broker models they have tied agents um and uh tied agents if you drive through any of these countries you'll see um you know alliance axa generali um offices um because and these are you know basically single company um single company face-to-face selling of the mainstream insurances you know home and motor and and agriculture insurance or whatever for for all the the people in those countries and of course transitioning that to be something digital without losing the intimacy of it being a face-to-face uh, connection was a big deal but what was interesting for me is uh, and so we tried loads of things and um you know different forms of how you could digitize the the these guys and I was sort of driving it from the global perspective, but the, in, in each country, they had really interesting experiments on how to make this this happen. And I think for me, what made me decide to start Concilio was I had the, basically this insight into these problems of commercial insurance broking in the UK. And what I also learned, by the way, when I was in Germany was that actually commercial insurance, I knew this kind of anyway, I knew the US market a little bit, but commercial insurance broking is pretty much done the same way wherever you go in the world. It's basically a producer, somebody back in the office who sorts out the paperwork for them and they go out and see clients and the clients love them for years and years and years. That's basically it. Um, and and then they have insurer relationships that they can place the business with. And it's exactly the same wherever you go. Whereas if you go into the consumer market, it's very different wherever you go in the world. So, you, you know, some people buy insurance online, you know, like Progressive in the US, Direct Line in the UK, people in Germany, Italy, France, they tend to buy from these tied agents, although direct is emerging. There are some, sometimes there are insurance brokers involved in that in the consumer space, sometimes there aren't. But in the commercial insurance, it's pretty much all insurance brokers. Um, so, so, so I had all these learnings from doing the more international stuff. And I was in lots of countries, you know, Australia, across the whole of Europe, a little bit in the US, Brazil, you know, it's really interesting. And so took those learnings about how you can wrap technology around people, but, you know, with this sort of human in the loop insights that the human was pretty important to the proposition. So how do you wrap technology around them? And then I started thinking, okay, there's that problem that I saw back in 2004 to 2011 was, you know, this, this consolidation problem, these guys are vulnerable. And I put the two together and basically said, insurance broking in the UK is fundamentally broken. Um, The issue is that the the value creators are not really aligned with the organizations that they're they're working with. And so that was my kind of insight. And then I started thinking about that, came back to live in the UK in 2015 and met my co-founder, a few beers and chats about what, what the issue was. And my co-founder was a tech guy and we, we iterated around on it for a 
best part of a year, but basically where we ended up was if you're going to address this issue of how to align value creators, i.e. the producers with the company, we need to have a technology, a different way of doing the processes through technology because the prevailing model of how brokers are organized via, they all bought one of four software providers, that that model is broken. Uh, and that model is holding back. So you cannot innovate in the UK anyway. It's very difficult to innovate on how you do insurance brokerage because the systems are organized in a particular way, which is a kind of 20 to 30 year away uh, ago way of organizing. So it's how to bring modern process insights into insurance broking. So we then spent a couple of years building the system and and, and then we started trading as a broker um, you know, about 18 months ago, two years ago. And the whole premise behind Concilio is tech-enabled brokerage that is all about serving the client needs and taking care of the producer? I mean, it, it sounds yeah, like exactly. so the, you're looking the, at both sides key, of the equation, right? Yeah, the key, the key thing we, so, uh, so we have three sort of, um, three things we believe about broking. The first one is um, the person is more important than the brand they work for. So, you know, in commercial insurance broking, I'm talking about the mid-market now. I'm not talking about what um, Next Insurance and, um, you know, the, the, the or Simply Business in the UK do. I'm not talking about like one, like a, a mobile hairdresser or a, or a person with one van. You know, I'm not talking about those. That, that will go direct and they don't need advice, really. They just need to buy cheap insurance. And I'm not really talking about like the global the Fortune 500 companies. I'm talking about the guys in the middle. Uh, in between those two, which is a lot of companies and a lot of turnover, and um, and what they typically need, so 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 those guys, they trust the person that deals with them. They don't really care what's on that person's business card, not really. So you know, the, there's a lot of loyalty to the producer. So that's the first the first point. People are more important than brand. The second bit is that advice and data are valued by consumers, by business owners. Now, the advice part we know is definitely true. That's the proposition at the moment. That's clear. The trick is to get them to buy into the, the, the better data will help them. Now, that's a bit more of a hypothesis. That's a bit more difficult to prove because that's not the prevailing offering. But, you know, over time, you can nibble away at that. The, here's a bit of extra data. Is this useful to you? Here's a bit of extra data. Here's a bit of extra data. So data plus advice plus data is valued by, by clients. And then the third piece is that broker data is superior to under to insurer data. <clears throat> now that's not a statement of the world as it is, but it's a statement of how the world should be. And the, for the very simple reason that if brokers have data, because they're earlier in the risk identification analysis process, they will um, that 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 is better for the outcome of the overall underwriting process. And the the, the simple example is if there is something about that risk, for example, there was a regulatory inspection. We call them the health and safety executive is the thing in the UK. There was a regulatory inspection into one of your factories two years ago, and there's publicly available data about that inspection. If you have that data, when you go to see the client and you say, oh, I can see you had an inspection here that they, they found some health and safety issue that's reported on, on the online database from the government. Um, if I can find it, your insurer can sure as hell find it. So please tell me everything about that and what happened and the mitigation, i.e. you're blending third-party external data with the insights from the company. And then you package that together. Then you send it to the underwriter. That's a lot better than the underwriter coming in later and saying, 
uh, oh, I noticed there was an inspection uh, two years ago by the government uh, regulator. What happened? And you go, oh, sorry, we forgot to ask them that. Uh, oh, oh uh, Mr. Client, what happened? And then you're going back and forth. And it's, it's, it's at best inefficient, at worst. Nobody, nobody spots it. The, the claim happens. They try and repudiate the claim, you know, professional uh, errors and omissions claim against the broker and everyone's unhappy. So so broker data is better than insurer data could be just because they're earlier in the chain and they can augment it with insights from the client. So there's three things. So we've got the people are more important than the brand, data plus uh, advice plus data is valued by clients and that broker data is superior to underwriters. And then with those insights, we then built our proposition, which is a kind of a three-way story to the producers is probably the primary one because they're the people who do the value creation and they get the, they get the clients ultimately. So it's to them, be the happiest, best rewarded and most professional broker you can be. And then it's to the clients and that's about the advice plus this data. And then to the insurers, it's about being a fair and straightforward trading partner, so we don't do the we don't do the please give us thirty five percent game, um, but it's also about we are actually adding value to your risk analysis and identification as we go through, and we've and we've put weight in terms of our business model, but also our technology behind each of those three elements of our proposition. That's uh, that's good stuff, and I, I, I want to focus in on broker data better than the insurer data. Yep, uh, because we're seeing. Uh, certainly really large sophisticated risk managers going fixed price on their brokerage services they're they're doing rfps yep. and they're they're getting and they're getting a lot of responses there are a lot of brokers that are willing to come in and work uh for them at at a at a fixed price and no commission you know and and we're we're seeing that quite a bit i was a city councilman in my city for 6 years we had a you know a good sized city 120,000 people we spent 380 million us a year uh, in our budget. So we, we had a decent risk management budget and, uh, we, we had fixed price brokerage and, uh, TPA services. We unbundled everything. And, um, you know, it, it, you're seeing a, a good bit of that. And there's a lot of brokers that are in a bit of an arms race right now to try and figure out how to continue to justify really their, their role in the world. Hmm. Because let's be honest, there, there are a lot of brokers. There's a lot of really good ones out there, but there's also a lot that, you know, work really hard to get the account and then, uh, email their client a PDF form to fill out every year and then send it to the existing underwriters and just exactly. try and just try and get it renewed. They don't shop the insurance every year. In fact, they'll they'll tell their client, oh no, you shouldn't shop your insurance every year. It really upsets the underwriters and et cetera, et cetera. And I think this goes to the heart of the proposition. It's like what does an insurance broker exist to do? And the and the the clue is slightly in the name. It's like broker is such a disreputable word <laughs> because it just means middleman right it means a like you know oh, if you just knew that and at its very worst which is you know where why it's being eliminated in some of the more commodities classes commoditized classes if you and that's why these tied agents in in, in germany and france you know if you, if you only sell Allianz policies and Allianz put up a website saying get your insurance here why would i go to the guy with a mustache called Gunter, who's going to take hours to do it because he's got lots of paperwork to fill in, and he's going to charge me more. Why wouldn't I just go to Allianz's website and do it? You know, it's, yeah. it's like so. If, if if there's no value add in the advice, then why would you pay for it? And that's the key thing. So we we're really about transitioning insurance broking, and and in the commercial space, it is it is more more the case. You know, from transaction enablers to risk advisors, right? You've got to add something to the risk advice now. Most half, more than half of the well, uh, the vast majority of the proposition is delivered by the skills and professional expertise of the people who actually 
know what they're talking about. So they go into your factory or your business and they look around and they say, oh, you know, you've got this exposure, you've got this exposure, you've got this exposure. I can see that. Like, oh, tell me about your, the machines you use. Oh, yeah, okay. And how is your health and safety policy? And, 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 and. Right, so there's, there's a lot about the expertise. But our insight is that, yes, that's true. And that's what brokers do. And that, that whole identification of risk and then structuring it so that then the insurers can quote against the against certain product types that's 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 a value-adding activity but in addition certain tools that can help that business to monitor and manage that risk and giving them data back is really in addition is interesting uh, to that client over time and then then you're getting them into a much more value um, value-adding relationship because you are helping them to manage that risk in a proactive way rather than just uh, being a chain being a, a step in the purchase of the of the coverages from the insurance now there carriers. were yeah and, and look I, I went through the dot-com boom I am a few years behind you but I, I went through the dot-com boom as did you and there were many that predicted 20 years ago that the broker would go the way of the dodo bird because uh, of the internet because of websites and, and that didn't happen uh, okay that that let's just say that did not happen but technology well, it, is, it, it did in certain segments and I think that's that's it did in, in certain segments. I mean, you have, you have, for example, you have home insurance companies, you have auto insurance companies here, uh, for sure in the United States, where you can directly write and bind. You have commercial insurance providers. I mean, that that you contact on the web, you quote it out on the web, they can quote you in a minute mm -hmm. and bind you instantly for commercial insurance. I mean, so yeah. it exists, but there's still a massive brokerage business out there, but you are seeing brokers put a lot more emphasis on technology. Let's let's talk mm -hmm. specifically about the technology, not about the not about the frameworks you selected to build mm -hmm. in, and not about the database yeah. structure. We don't we're not going to you know that, that's maybe that's a conversation for Peter. It looks like that's the role he plays in your firm, but yeah, 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 he's yeah. A CTO, yeah. yeah. So um, and he looks like he has a fascinating background. Um, but let's let's keep it to high level. Mm -hmm. What specifically are y'all developing that's really changing the game for your clients and your producers? So, um, so, so the, the core of it and the heart of it is really mundane if you're from any other industry, but absolutely game-changing if you're in our little world in, in insurance broking. And that is um, producing a kind of broking platform. So the actual broking processes, the same as what applied systems do. And we have these other ones called Actuaries and SSP, but doing it properly. And, and the key thing is to have all of the risk data in the platform. So the prevailing way, the typical way of, so, so, so most, bro, you, you've got to understand a little bit about the history of broking software. So most broking software emerged from basically transaction accounting systems. So the key thing in the 1980s, so we, we've got we've got these four platforms, as I say, in the UK. There's um, Applied to bringing the Epic system across from the US, um, which is marginal improvement on some of the uh, existing ones. But then they've got a whole a whole challenge of of, of de-Americanizing it as they bring it across. <laughs> um, but the um, you know it's not just dollars to pound signs; it's other stuff. Um, so so the basically there's two things that that, that the traditional broking software has done. Uh, one is it's focused in on the transaction and it's it's basically focused on getting the commission calculation correct between the broker and the and the insurer and logging that there was a transaction and there's various regulated client money calculations you need to do. And, you know, there's some complexity there and it's valid and that's a good thing to do and computers are well 
organized to do it and they've been doing it since the 1970s and 80s and and that's what but but because they started there what they did is they built all the process functionality and and more importantly the product and risk information logging functionality from that core thing which is i need to get the right transaction so they started in the middle and then built their way out so what typically happens in most brokerage or all, all these brokerage um systems is that they they've got a hodgepodge of data they've definitely got the, the core data you need to be able to do the calculation about your commission and how much premiums written and so on so that will be relatively robust data but what they won't have is the data that is really important to make the underwriting decision most of that is not found within these systems most of it is found in as you said it before in pdfs that are sitting there separately or word documents that are created as reports for the clients or excel spreadsheets or whatever and there may be a subset of data or there'll be there'll be some fields which are kind of never used that could be used but they're not quite right and 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 and, and. so they basically broking and this is one of the one of the starting reasons why we built our own platform was we thought the data model for commercial insurance is is not fit for it does not include it does not allow you to put the core risk data into it so what happens is that the, there are four to five levels of rekey etc so the the very foundational step is to have a data model and there's a there's a key process in broking called the fact find which is when you actually go and write down what you find in a in a in your in this client that you know you go around their factory and you write down you know how many how many people are working there what are the what's the wage role of that what's the type of construction of the building what are the business activities what machines are they using to do that activity how, what would happen if one of them exploded you know all this kind of stuff and um and it's quite complex and it's and the really interesting thing about commercial insurance as opposed to personal insurance is that's really heterogeneous data so there's a massive variety of data there's so many configurations of it so to have a good data model at the heart of what you do is not is non-trivial exercise and that's why most people have shied away from it so the response that most people in the industry both insurers and brokers have done is what they've done is they defaulted to the product structure as their data model and then only put a subset of that data into any any systems because most of it, as I say, was the real value adding stuff that enables an underwriter to make the decision was sitting outside of these systems. So, so they they had a they had a product structure, a product oriented data structure that was non comprehensive, and so that's what the norm has been. And what that means is that there's massive inefficiency in um, in being able to just transact insurance broking because of the rekey issue what it also means is that there's there's no usable data inside broking systems the only usable data is that that the the insurers later in the process have consolidated themselves and they only use you know insurers will send them these great big beautiful you know phd thesis kind of levels of of, of insight into these risks and the insurers are throwing away 90 percent of it and just capturing a few key numbers that they need to do their rating and uh, and making a few qualitative judgments on some other stuff and so you've got all this complete lack of 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 this data and information in the system so that's the foundation step and that's what enables everything else if you've got all the re relevant data uh, and then you grow that data over time and you augment it with third party uh, insights and so on then that for us is the foundation stone and that still for us is quite a big differentiator versus everyone else in the market so that's our sort of starting point and then everything else we want to do builds on that are you capturing and storing loss run data i mean wh wh what are we talking about here yeah some of it's loss run data but the, you know the, uh, 
to, to the extent that the client knows that. So it's, you know, it's log of all their claims that they've had that they're aware of. Yes, that's a key thing. It's their business process. It's specifics of the of the construction of their premises, et cetera, et cetera. So it's all the things that a broker is already asking, you know, that's and, and then, you know, adding insights to that from, you know, like, so there's quite good, there's quite a good open data um, set available in the UK and most European countries. And I think most places in the US, you know, you can see the crime statistics, you can see the, um, uh, the use of adjacent premises, you can see how far it is from the fire station, you know, you can see the flood zones that the government have articulated and then some insurers use different flood mapping so you've got all these kind of layers of different hazard and so on that you can layer on uh, to this data but the core of it is always insights about what this business does you know oh what am i doing i'm a printer i've got a great big machine if this machine goes bust then i can't do any printing how much will it cost me to get another machine and well actually it takes a year to get the spare part from germany oh goodness okay so that's going to be a big claim if that goes wrong etc 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 so you've got all these you know all these these layers of information build and that's what a broker does they go in and they find all this stuff out but then what a typical broker does they write it in a word document fire it off in a pdf to um or they get or as you say they get the client to write it in a word document or a pdf they fire it off to the underwriter and and they don't care about that information Neither does the underwriter. The underwriter reads it once and goes, yeah, uh, $10,000 or £10,000, £20,000. But no one's actually retained that information in any meaningful way. And so that's a a big issue. Are you structuring that? Yeah, no, we're we're structuring it and we are then, and the key thing, and then the efficiency part is we're then massively reusing that. So the big efficiency in our system comes when you come around to do a renewal. So when you come to do a renewal for us, there's a there's a key thing that in um, that um, the brokers have to do. They have to prep the documents for the next renewal. So you you yep. wrote this piece of business January last year or February last year. You're you're okay. That's great. We did all that. There was a lot of well, that was really hard work to do all that structuring of the information, writing those beautiful reports, getting consolidating all the pictures. You know, la di da di da copy pasting google maps and all that stuff oh it is this lovely beautiful word document okay great oh now i've got to do it all again for this year because yes i can work a little bit from last year but actually um you know um uh, none of it's in a system and 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 it's uh, and all these changes have happened in the year and i need to consolidate those and oh my goodness so you typically go a big risk or largest risk say i'm paying i don't know 30 50 000 dollars or pounds would be you know two days work for someone to prep then you go and see the client update it etc for us, it's a ten-minute job. Yeah, sure. Because because you've kept that up to date all the year, and it's it's a, it's a it's a structured data set and a dynamic data set that you can uh, you, you know that's always up to date. So what we're seeing here is a continued trend that we've seen and we've been talking about on the podcast for the last uh, ten episodes, and that is there are certainly technologists that are building products for traditional firms to implement to try and digitize th- those firms, and then there's others that are saying. To heck with that! I'm going to go and start my own insurance firm. So, yeah, yeah, you could have gotten together and said, "I'm going to compete against Epic Applied Systems." Yeah, we could have done. Yeah, you can say, "I'm going to build yeah. a new Epic and I'm going to sell it to all the the broking companies out there." Uh, actually, we have done that. What, what the and maybe it would have been an easier road because it's not been smooth, obviously. Um, and we're still smaller than perhaps we would have been if we'd done that. On the other side, my problem is. I love insurance brokers. I think insurance brokers are really cool as individuals. The people who do the broking, that is, the actual, you know, the producers themselves, the guys who go out, they're bloody heroes. They go into these industrial estates. They, they're people in suits and, 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 and slip on shoes and they go in and they, and they, and they understand what a, what a, a paper warehouse does or a, or a, or a metal 
you know, manufacturing business, and then they're in an accountant's office the following week, and they're advising them about professional indemnity. These are these are you know the real like deep insight business consulting skill set. It's really fantastic. And then you know they've got twenty years of, of of apprenticeship learning on all that. Fantastic people. Their bosses, however, utter idiots. So <laughs> so so I'm like, do I really want to go around and spend the the the, the latter half of my career? going and selling to a bunch of idiots or do i want to actually hang out with the cool people who are the ones who actually do the job and make their lives better and that that was kind of why we ended up doing what we're doing which is to say we can be a better broking firm yeah okay it's a slightly harder road but actually and also from an economic point of view to be honest the margins are with being a broker not really selling the technology to them um so uh well you know if you sold it to everybody i guess there's a margin in that but um you know, the buying cycles would be painful. You know, it's just not much fun. So, so I, so from our point of view, it wasn't about being a technology provider to brokerages. It was about actually being a brokerage, but being this sort of full stack brokerage. You know, same sort of. I mean, this is putting myself into slightly grand company in terms of uh, money raising ability, but you know, the same sort of insights as um, as a lemonade would have had. You know, we, we're not going to uh, go and buy whatever the prevailing bit of technology is. We're going to build our own, and we, but we're going to be in the in the industry, be a distributor in the industry ourselves. Sure, and you're not going to sell your tech to other people. It's only available for your company. Yeah, I mean, we having said all of that, there is a there is a, a very friendly firm of ours. So we we did decide to build our tech first. We 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 read the lean startup and all the other stuff that you read, and then we um, we ignored half of it because just we're bloody minded middle aged men. So um, <laughs> so we built our our core platform, and we did that with an existing broking firm, which is very helpful, actually. You know, if you're going to do lean startup type uh, approaches and MVPs and so on, it, you you know, if you've got people you can work with, uh, guinea pig users and so on, that's obviously far superior. So we we implemented back in 2017 before we'd really got going as a broker We because uh, you need to be regulated as a broker. Um, it takes six to eight months anyway. So back in 2017, we launched our platform with a team of 10 people in an existing broking firm just to basically smooth off the rough edges. We probably didn't do them a good service for the first six months of that because it really was rough around the edges but they just used our platform exclusively they put a load of business through it we then learned and iterated and so on and uh, so by the time we sort of started trading in earnest about 18 months ago um you know well well firstly these guys who've been using it they they expanded and it's now 20 odd guys that they've got using it and uh, and then we they put through you know i don't know 15 20 million um of uh, of premium through it which was pretty good for us as a good starting point and then when we had our own brokers they we knew we had something that was a lot more robust so um yeah it was um so we definitely work with you know we work with an existing firm but it's not our a real uh, idea to go and you know, no, but you build, had to build a sales pipeline. Yeah, you had to have a beta client. It's it's hard yeah, to exactly. it's hard to build for an idea. It's much easier to build for a company, just in general. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, otherwise we'd have needed to recruit brokers, and what would they have done? You know, they, they oh, here's a platform that's not quite ready yet. Oh, but I've got some clients I want to write, and if we were holding the regulatory risk of non-compliance as well as the sort of technology vendor risk, it's uh, you know, it's a bit too much. But no, that was a really nice way to get over um, this initial um, yep. uh, initial kind of uh, MVP problem, and then. Um, we've, we've ramped up our own our own brokers uh, since then. Now, one of the things I've seen brokerages that are really tech-centered brokerages do reasonably well is take all the structured data on their clients and then and then they they bring it into a common form for each of the markets they're shopping and yep. they they either format it in the PDF, Lord help us, that yep. market is asking for, 
or they get uh, even more sophisticated than that. Can you talk to me about, because that's a big part of this, is normalizing the data input, normalizing the storage, putting it in some kind of structured format, having a way of dealing with unstructured data like photos, videos, and yep. free text narratives, but then putting that in a way that each market, because each market has a specific application that you've got to modify your data for, right? Yeah, that's that's right. It's not quite as prevalent in the UK as it is in the US. The, the um, what we don't have as well is we have one regulated market. Whereas you've got fifty, which is a real penny. Isn't it fantastic? Yeah, I know it's like you, you kind of take all the economies of scale and then rip them out again by having fifty different jurisdictions on stuff like insurance. It doesn't really make sense. But um, the, actually, um, let's, let's let's pause there. I've spent a lot of time thinking about a federalist system versus a, a group collection of states. And the interesting thing that it's driven in America has been an intense amount of competition between states uh, for for businesses and for uh, regulatory infrastructure because because it's so easy to move states. It's so hard to move countries, right? Yeah. You can get an entirely different set of laws, taxes, and infrastructure by moving states. And so you end up with a highly competitive system here where Texas is constantly competing against California and New York, and Illinois is constantly competing against Wisconsin and Indiana, and they're competing on tax rates and infrastructure and regulatory rates. I mean, it's it's really fascinating. I guess, you know, I'm maybe old-fashioned, but I think it's about what, I mean, I, the tax rate thing I totally get because obviously you've got a lot more local taxes um, than we have. We have everything if they, you know, call it federal level if you like the national level but um apart from business rates but which uh, which are property tax but um it's insurance regulatory issues so, oh yeah you know, no. my, under, my understanding is you if you're a brokerage you've just got to fill in a load more forms you, so you, you do regulated you do in each state and it's just a bit of a pain in the bum yeah and then and then as a carrier you've got to then submit your so if you're a big carrier no problem at all you'll 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 file in 50 states for your workers comp policy or whatever but obviously there's quite big there's quite big differences in uh, like you know california will have a particular type of workers comp that they need um uh, specification and some people will not be in that market and so so yeah i i i um that's the um i mean we you know at some point we will uh think about coming to the us and certainly the initial research i've done suggests that um you pick a you can pick a couple of benign states to start with and um and try and build from there simply oh. business when they came over they 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 started in Massachusetts i think and then uh, and one other and and you know you just need somewhere as a base and then you can work out all this regulatory control. target an economy bigger than great britain's come to texas buddy let's do it <laughs> let's go yeah only if it, only if it can be in uh, in austin though oh not, 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 you're killing me you're killing not, me not not aggie not aggie land yeah so let's let's talk about the future what you've what you've really summarized is this is a modern broking firm, or as we would call it, yep. a bro- broker, brokering firm. Yep. Uh, you, you have a, you're, it's a modern firm driven around standardized data collection and storage, uh, yep. cust- customized output around significantly minimizing the amount of rework and manual reentry that your producers have to do, and yep. also making it a really a producer-centric business model internally and a client-centric business model externally and making it much less about the firm. Yep. That mentality, that methodology dovetails with a movement, a organizational model called Teal that you guys ascribe to. Briefly tell uh, listeners out there what Teal is all about. Yeah, so this is a, um, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a number of publications on this. I think there's a thing called Holacracy and 
there's various others, but the one that I found compelling was a, um, uh, a book by a Belgian guy. And normally we don't in Britain, we don't like things by Belgian people. We think it's about the most boring country on God's earth. Except for Tintin. But Except for Tintin. Tintin's not bad. And Jean-Claude Van Damme, maybe. There you go. And the chocolate. Uh, and the waffles. And they do some okay chocolates. And the waffles. Yeah. The wa- no, I think they're more the Dutch, actually. The straw waffle. True. Yeah. Okay. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll no, give I think that that's too. it for Belgium. Okay. So this guy, this uh, guy, so this guy. <laughs> if you ask a Brit, what's uh, name some famous things from Belgium? They they mention uh, a um a fictional character from um from uh, uh by uh, Agatha Christie called Hercule Poirot. Uh, that's all they ever come up uh, with. Uh, he doesn't exist. So Hercule, you know. Hercule Poirot does exist in many people's head, my friend. And I watched. Indeed, indeed. But and he is I the watched, most famous. I watched every French. single episode of Poirot. So uh, let's not let's not leave that one out. Despite all of that, this guy Frederick Laloux, his name is pretty yeah. cool guy. He wrote this book called Reinventing Organizations, and um and what's really interesting. Uh, is that he? It's it's a different way of looking at the world and and the history of the world, and, and basically saying actually, if you look at the world history through the lens of organizational structures, you can go there's there's like you know the caveman thing, and they call that the red world, and this is basically like you know a kind of uh, somewhat capricious autocrat type thing, but at least that but but there was an innovation there. There was about it was about top down control, and and then you you know you you went to bureaucracies. They call it the 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 uh, I think it's the, uh, not Amber, what's it called? Brown uh, sort of thing. And that was like the church, you know, like or armies, you know, where, where it's division of labor and so on, hierarchy, and you do what you're told, but you do, you know, up through a hierarchy and there's some objective standards. And then you've got this sort of stri- strive for innovation, the modern corporation, but let's say the sort of, you know, mad men style, General Motors, Ford Motor Company, 1960s, multinational, maybe into the 90s, you know, the, the way it's, the way the sort of, you know, you get you get burnout and all that sort of thing, but it introduces some innovation and so on. And then you've got the then you've got the green the green uh, type of organisation. This is sort of reaction to the sort of corporate thing, and you still see this, you know, Ben and Jerry's ice cream and those sorts of people, and and it, get, it kind of gets a bit mashed up with a certain political sensibility or a certain sort of you know um, worldview, which is you know a particular ideology. And it was um the the but they introduced this idea of stakeholder management and all this sort of thing, but it got a bit discredited because you know it's a bit directionless and and it can can seem a little bit up its own backside, and so this teal thing is a sort of next evolution in this theory, which says actually there's some good in that whole that all these previous iterations of like what the state of the art in organizations is has had merit, and you need to build on that, but actually uh, all of them left a lot of value on the table um and the the core real value um was that the the creativity and the energy of the people who work in these organizations was a kind of not really being optimized not really being being pushed so they talk about this this guy talks about there being three imperatives um they said the first one is evolutionary purpose which is um that what you your organization stands for something positive in the world and and uh, you know it's a big thing we'll talk about it in the context of insurance broking but my view is there's a massive um noble purpose to insurance brokerage it's just people don't really you know if you watch um groundhog day uh perhaps you don't that's you know that he's not the best advocate for insurance brokers that guy in groundhog day you know ned uh, and, and then, uh, ned ryerson ned Bing. ryerson exactly Bing. he's not the one He's not the he's not the best, uh, you know, because it's all about the selling. It's not about the uh, the, the protecting. So, people. so that was, you just named literally my number one favorite movie of all time that I watch every year on yeah. Groundhog Day, which happened to be Sunday, and I wear my Groundhog Day Punxsutawney Phil T-shirt while I watch it. So, that is, yeah. 
it is. He's not the best representation for sure. He's not. He's not. And it's not just his coat. Uh, it's it's the whole thing. And then uh, and then a wholeness is a second part, which is that when you come to work, you bring your whole self, warts and all. You know, you don't you don't park your Brexit or your Donald Trump opinions actually at the door completely. But you've got to be respectful, obviously, and you've got to get on. But you know, you you bring your whole self, and then uh, and then and, and then others support. You, you know, accept you for who you are as well, and and you you find a kind of way of working together which 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 feels congruent with who you are, and then you uh, self management is the third one, and self management is basically saying, look, I'm here. It's it's an adult to adult thing. I'm not waiting for my boss to to find out that I haven't done any work. I'm going to get kind of get organised and 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 uh, drive things to my agenda. And if you've got those three things, evolutionary purpose, i.e. the organization feels like it's doing the right thing according to your values, uh, wholeness, which is that I bring my whole self to work, and self-management, then if you do that, if you get those things right, and it's quite a lot of serendipity to get that right, and it doesn't mean that there's an absence of process and structure. It's not a, like a kindergarten thing where everyone's just sitting around a, outside a, a teepee and, and, and kind of um, you know, uh, singing uh, Kumbaya or whatever. It's, it's, it's real. You've got to focus on what the organization's about. If you get those things right, you can unlock massive amounts of um, creativity and productivity. And uh, and so my insight was, if I think of go back to my career and I think back to, you know, all those problems of this kind of very robber baron type of approach with consolidation insurance broking that I saw back in the noughties, I saw how technology could actually be used to support the processes and the way that people are working. Um, but if you put, if you overlay that onto insurance broking, it looks like it fits really well because the interesting thing about insurance broking is that it is fundamentally done by people in relatively small cells, one or two people, organ, uh, you know, client facing units, and there's not there's not a massive leverage of let's say a massive brand or a or a something capabilities which are say industrial capabilities. This is an artisan job. You, you're going and you're you're creating this value when you go and see your client. And what you need is just really good tools to do it with, and a really good proposition and everything else. And you need to feel that you're supported, and you need to feel that you're doing the right thing, and that you're 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 you know you've got the flexible way of working and all the rest of it. So so we you know so we've we've sort of evolved this this approach into uh, insurance broking, and we when we do our inductions we. We take sort of six to eight people on at a time. When we do our inductions, we spend a whole day just talking about culture, talking about what's the right thing. And if you talk to anyone in my organization, you say, what's Teal? They'll tell you what I just told you. And they'll say, yeah, we're a Teal organization. We really buy this. But we're not talking about a bunch of, you know, nerds who are all millennial, self-referential you know, people sitting around in a bubble. This is not who my staff are. My, I've got people from late 20s i've got the oldest is 61 i've got people from uh different national backgrounds i've got someone from nigeria someone from japan someone from sri lanka i've got people who are from the grittiest you know most sort of um uh let's say uh i'm just trying to find a nice word for it in your world let's say um what we would say sort of working class or you know like gritty gritty industrial post-industrial sure. backgrounds and you know and all things in between and 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 people who've you know done it for 30 years and then studied and so on but but the, the point is this is not this is a glue which can work for anyone as long as what you know this is about being that authentic insurance broker that you can be not about 
fitting to a template that's set by a bunch of people who like avocado on toast and are sipping lattes in a coastal <laughs> city in the US. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, I do not. But, I, I, but, no, I but do. you would also I feel do. comfortable if you loved avocado on toast and you like lattes and etc. I don't like right. lattes. I don't do caffeine, but I do love a good avocado on toast. But I've liked that for 20 years. So to be to be <laughs> you were you were a, an early adopter. To, to be clear, I, I lived in Mexico in the mid 90s and fell in love with the avocado about uh, <laughs> about 25 years ago. Well, it's a bit more uh, having avocado where you live is a bit more authentic than doing it in uh, the middle of London in Shoreditch. When yeah, you're wearing your wearing your skinny jeans with oh, I know with your beard with your with your soul patch. And yeah, so don't forget about the oiled beard. Um, yeah, I, exactly. I, I went into Browns uh, in that Brown. Hotel, it's near um, Westminster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went into Browns because one of my friends used to always love going to Browns every time I went to London. So I went there and had tea. And uh, number one thing on the menu, avocado toast. And I'm like that. That is not British, but it is. <laughs> but it is here. Well, look, this has been a really interesting conversation. I'm excited about what you guys are up to. I appreciate you spending an hour with us and talking about technology and process and people. I mean, you're, you're really trying to tackle a big issue, and that is what's wrong with brokerage. Mm-hmm. And do it by pushing on a few different levers, right? People, yep. process, and technology all simultaneously. And not just yep. building a service company for brokers, but actually building a modern brokerage. Yep. Uh, so how, how do people find out more information about your firm and what you're doing? Well, our website, although to be honest, it's a bit crap. It's one of those things that, you know, you never quite get around to making a website up to date, do you? So it's a bit, a bit outdoor. So, so have, a, have a look on there. Obviously, if you are listening to this in the UK and you're a broker, probably unlikely as you're probably not an industry watcher. <laughs> but if you are, then get in touch with, we are hiring. Um, and we're hiring if you're, wherever you're based in the UK, we're hiring. We are um, definitely going to look at uh, probably within Europe, the next step um, post-Brexit, we probably need to go and set up in Ireland or Germany or somewhere first. And then we would uh, we'd build out from there. Um, but, um, yeah, if you want to talk to us about, I mean, I think what we're really interested in doing is having dialogue with people who've, I mean, even people who've got, you know, traditional brokerage and, 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 are, are really pushing the envelope on how to run a broking culture and, and, and the insights around that, that, that I think is really interesting. And I, I'm on the, uh, the, the, um, council of a thing called InsureTech UK. So it's, it's about 60, 70 companies in the UK that are getting together to sort of be, connecting the insure techs together um there's a only a few of us that are doing commercial lines that are doing commercial insurance uh, in that space but we would love to connect with uh, us organizations that are doing similar things and uh, yeah definitely just drop me a line on, on linkedin uh, and uh, and we can we can have a dialogue with you awesome and that's that. concilio that's k o n s i l e o.com you heard it here he may come to that's right. mainland europe and then uh, if he really wises up he'll come to texas well i was like coming to i was like coming to the states if only to um yeah, we need to buy. If only to buy good shirts <laughs> and better avocados, because we do have and better. better you yes. do have really good. Avocados. <laughs> well, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I appreciate your time today, and uh, thanks for joining us on the InsureTech Geek Podcast, John. Thanks, James. All the best. Awesome, and that is our discussion. This has been the InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, JBKnowledge.com. It's all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. My website is jamesbenham.com. Big thanks to uh, Big Daddy Jim Greenlee, our podcast producer, Kara Daltonaro, our creative producer. And thank you for joining us today. I look forward to talking to you all soon. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and keep geeking out.